Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 402nd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Timothy Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library who's going to talk to us about the origin and evolution of the presidential library system. The history buff for today's show is Dave Baker. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer just happens to be the same Dave Baker. Wow, coincidence never stops on this show. Uh, this is the opening segment of our show, which is referred to as Faderuk de Naren. And today we'll be talking about the origin and evolution of presidential library system with Dr. Timothy Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Hoover Presidential Library. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks. Good to be with you. Thrilled to have you. Uh, Can you give our listeners a little background on uh, the creation of the first presidential library? Sure. It, It really starts almost as an accident. Um, first of all, let's start out by, by telling the truth. They're not really libraries, um, and that's how the system begins. Uh, that is that they're uh, institutions that have uh, a museum, they have education programs, they have a conference center, and they have millions and millions of documents and memorabilia, but they're not libraries in the sense that they loan books or tapes or have children's hours or anything like that. And the system begins actually in 1941 uh, with Franklin Roosevelt after he made a decision not to donate his papers and memorabilia. Uh, In fact, starting with George Washington, our first president, all the presidents uh, have been uh, had uh, through common law the right to take these papers and documents and memorabilia with them. So they packed everything up. And most of them made private decisions on what to do with these materials some donating them to individual libraries in their communities, others uh, to the Library of Congress. And when it gets up to Franklin Roosevelt, who is our 32nd president, uh, he decides he's not going to donate them to the Library of Congress. He kind of likes the idea and fancies himself an historian, kind of likes the idea of building uh, a a separate structure on his uh, family property in Hyde Park, New York, uh, where he will uh, open the, uh, the the gallery to uh, the public, they can see his his knickknacks and trophies, and he'll work on his memoirs. And in fact, does open the library and does give several of these fireside chats that he's so famous for from the library, uh, and uh, donates the building along with his papers and memorabilia to the federal government and the National Archives. Uh, in Washington, D.C., a new agency started in 1934. So the Franklin D. Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, is the very first presidential library. He called it a library because he said, I don't like the word archives. It's too stuffy. And so he called it a library, and that's the very first presidential library. Okay. All right. So I'm then interested, how did this become systematized over time um and and is it in fact you know one unit being managed by the national archives or or whatever or do each individual 
presidential library really have function autonomously? That's a great question, because there are 13 presidential libraries that are administered by the National Archives, and those start with Herbert Hoover chronologically. It, wasn't, it was actually fourth in order of being established, but the oldest in terms of presidency, but it goes from Herbert Hoover, our 31st president, who became president in 1929, up through uh, President George W. Bush, uh, who has a presidential library, the most recently one that's been opened. There is also a, a change in the system that is coming with the Obama Presidential Center, and we don't know what will happen with, with uh, President Trump and whether he will have his own presidential library or center or not. But anyway, from, from Hoover through George W. Bush, there are 13 that are administered by the National Archives, but the brand... Uh, is so popular, that is, presidential library, that there are other presidential libraries, and I'll put those, uh, those words in quotes, around the country. So you'll, there is a presidential library for Rutherford B. Hayes, for example, in Ohio, and one for uh, Woodrow Wilson in Virginia. And many of the listeners of, of uh, this program will have been to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, which actually is administered by the state of Illinois, not by the National Archives. So there is some confusion over which of these libraries are privately run or run by states and which of them are run by the uh, federal government. The ones run by the National Archives start with Hoover and go up through George H.W. Bush, and then there will be a component of the, the Obama Presidential Center that will be run by the federal government. But things are changing, and that's how the system of presidential libraries has changed as each one has been added. I like to say that it's a little bit like the, the 13 libraries are like 13 brothers. They, they do have common parents, in, in a way, in the National Archives, but they're all individuals. And so each one of these libraries is different depending on how much money the friends of the president raise uh, to build a structure because that's all privately uh, paid for. Part of the agreement, and that was what Roosevelt did, was part of the agreement was, I'll give you the building, I'll raise the money and build the building, I'll give you the papers, but you, the federal government, will have to agree then to care for it, the building and the papers in perpetuity, and pay for the staff. And, of course, that's what they've done uh, since that first uh, one opened in 1941. So after Roosevelt, Harry Truman becomes president. We all know that in 1945. He leaves office in 1953, uh, and he decides he'd like a presidential library. Well, there's no law. Uh, there's no requirement that the government accept the building. And so he and his friends begin to work toward legislation that will establish a presidential library system. In 1955, you have the Presidential Libraries Act, and uh, what, what that does is it pri provides in law for any living former president, and at that time in 1955 that would only be Hoover and Truman, could build a structure, the government would accept it, and as long as the president signed over the papers in the deed. So Harry Truman gets the second presidential library. It's opened on the 4th of July in 1957. He has as his guests Eleanor Roosevelt, Earl Warren, and Herbert Hoover. I bet it was interesting lunchtime conversation between those three. Yes, at, yes. At any rate, Tru 
Truman opens that library uh, in 1957, and then very quickly thereafter, in 1962, you have the uh, uh, Eisenhower Library opening. Very quickly, they had they'd realized, the Eisenhower people realized very quickly, even before Eisenhower had left office, that they were going to have a presidential library in Abilene, Kansas. And then in August of 1962, some listeners will remember or know of the fact that Herbert Hoover opened his modest uh, 4,000 square foot presidential museum in West Branch, where he was born. Uh, all of the libraries have grown over time, uh, but Hoover's probably more than most as a percentage. It started out as 4,000 square feet. It's over 50,000 square feet now. Uh, but each one of these buildings has grown, or centers, I should say, has grown exponentially. They now range between 150,000 and 200,000 square feet, and that's just the size of the institution. Uh, the, the volume of papers and memorabilia has also grown exponentially. So they've gotten bigger and bigger. Congress has become less and less pleased with what they see as temples and monuments to the egos of these men. And so they've put restrictions, uh, and there's been legislative changes. And with each president, really starting in 1978 and then going on, 1985 and so forth, there's been changes requiring the former presidents not only to build the buildings and to donate materials uh, to to the people of, uh, of the United States, but also to ra raise an endowment to help pay for the buildings. And so after 1962, uh, you end up with uh, um, uh, President well, Kennedy. President Kennedy, of course, was, was, was assassinated, and his library opens up a little later in Boston, and then Lyndon Johnson opens up a presidential library in, uh, 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 on the campus at the uh, University of Texas, and that marks the beginning of a change where presidents begin to, to build their libraries not in their hometowns, as was the case with Eisenhower and Hoover and Roosevelt and Truman, but on university campuses. And so what you have is a, is a change in, in where the presidential library is located. You also have a growth in the types of activities that they're doing. It's not just a museum uh, and a place for scholars, but also now for school kids and for conferences and for plays. So they become all-round history centers, history centers. And, 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 and engines of education and information. Uh, and now over a million visitors uh, come to the library each year. All right, well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table 
Our guest for today is Dr. Timothy Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Hoover Presidential uh, Library, and we're going to be talking about the origins and evolution of the presidential library system. Our history buff for today's show is Dave Baker. So, Dave, why don't you start us out? Well, Dr. Walsh, you did a good job in the last segment explaining the the structure of uh, the presidential libraries, and I did not know that. I thought that... uh, uh, the it, all of them were managed by the archives or the National mm-hmm. Park Service. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit more about uh, how staff uh, are chosen and hired at, at these different facilities and uh, the, the programming that goes on after the passing of a president? Uh, you know, I'm kind of interested in, uh, you sure. know, if, if their plans, uh, if their vision of what they thought it, the uh, facility would be, the library would be, uh, comes out to be uh, fact uh, after the fact. <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> and of course, what you have here is is the clash of ego with history, because when a, a former president leaves office, his friends kind of as a response not only to their own role in the, that president's life, but also to, to somebody who they love and, and want to honor, they often build or plan a structure that is a little bit out of bounds with the actual accomplishment of, of the president uh, as history might accord them. Now, that's not the case with Herbert Hoover, I'm rather pr- proud to say, that the building and the, the, the uh, footprint of the Hoover presidential site uh, in West Branch is, is fairly modest. I will say this, it's, it's a large land area. It's 181 acres, and that makes it the second largest land footprint uh, after FDR, which also is part of a national park. But the building itself is small in one story. Well, when you get to uh, a case like uh, the Johnson Library, I think it's seven floors. It's built of marble. They have these elegant uh, uh, archives boxes, red archives boxes with gold seals. It, it does appear to be something of a temple. And when you go to some of the other ones, too, even the Kennedy Library in Boston, which is out there in Boston Harbor, it's an I.M. Pei, uh, you know, a prize-winning architect who designed it. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton's library is over the, the uh, um, Arkansas River, and it's all glass. So there is that clash, uh, and it becomes very costly to maintain the buildings uh, as time has gone on, and that's why Congress has pushed back on it. As to the staff, the staff size is fairly consistent as far as the government is willing to support them. That is, there's a director, and depending on the size of the building, an assistant director, usually a supervisory archivist who's responsible for the papers. There's going to be an education uh, curator and a museum curator. Uh, the education curator, of course, working uh, heavily with, with uh, OK through sixth grade students who come to the, uh, to the library for tours and do programs and, and so forth. And often you'll have a public affairs specialist who will plan conferences. People like to come and talk history, just like this program. They like to talk about presidents. There's a real avocational interest out there in presidents. There are people who uh, are determined to visit every birthplace or every presidential grave site, and so they come through. So there's, there's always a lot of activity. About a million people a year will visit presidential libraries for one purpose or another, and when a former president is still alive, they're like 
a, a magnet, a publicity magnet. If it's known that they're going to be at their library or in town at, at that time, it just attracts all kinds of people. So there's a measure of celebrity and ego involved in building these libraries and in the programs. As time goes on, as a president passes away and then his children pass away and grandchildren, uh, they, the, the interest uh, kind of abates somewhat and we get a more realistic view. We get libraries that are willing to be critical. Uh, the Hoover Library is, is somewhat critical of, of Mr. Hoover's response to the Great Depression. The Nixon Library, for example, is quite critical about his role in Watergate. So the touchy issues become more uh, readily treated as time goes on and history sort of smooths some of the, uh, uh, the, the ego uh, elements uh, down to, uh, to a realistic fashion. Well, that's what I'd kind of like to ask because uh, when I think of presidential libraries, uh, and I haven't been to either one of these, but the one like for one when Nixon was leaving the White House after resigning, mm. I had read from a legitimate source that he had loaded up the trucks with a ton of material and was heading out the door when George Gerald Ford looks out the window and here's the new president of the United States and runs out in front of the trucks and politely asks, what the hell are you doing? And when they say, we're taking this stuff away, which was a lot of the information from Watergate, he said, no, it's going back. Um, if you're a president, how, is, is that material included in his library? And the second one was, at Ronald Reagan's, I've never been there, but they've got his Air Force One plane in the library. I mean, yeah. how the hell yeah. do you pull that off? <laughs> well, to this, let's start with Nixon, but you're absolutely, well, first of all, there's a kernel of truth in what you've said. Okay. Gerald Ford, of course, did not run out, but here was the challenge. Richard Nixon resigns from office, first president to resign from office, and uh, there's a, a, a huge body of materials, uh, much of which, of course, relates to Watergate. We all know about the infamous tapes, but there's also other materials and there's great concern on the part of Congress that the president, Richard Nixon, will take these with him because, as I mentioned, according to common law, uh, and in fact, even according to the Presidential Libraries Act of 1955, that was his property. So Congress immediately seized the material under, under legislation, okay. and it was put in storage and put under the custody of the National Archives. And there was litigation for the next... Well, I think it was 2008 that they finally resolved the last part of the litigation over who owned the Nixon materials. So they were processed, they were made selectively available by the National Archives at a separate facility in Washington, D.C. In the meantime, of course, Richard Nixon leaves office, he starts writing books, his reputation begins to come back, he makes a decision to build a private library in Yorba Linda, California, where he was born, uh, and, and uh, they open the library, but it has only papers that he were his personal property, that is, vice presidential materials, his senatorial stuff, his post-presidential stuff. The big hole is all that presidential materials. After negotiation, litigation, and so forth, finally, in I think sometime around 2001 or two, they sign legislation and, and a formal agreement is made that uh, the uh, materials that were seized by Congress uh, will be uh, moved out to California. A new, as a new structure or part of the building will be added on to the Nixon Library. It will all be brought under the control of the National Archives. And so that's when finally 
uh, the the Nixon Library comes into the system after many years. It's it's more than ten years after Nixon died in 1994. So it was a very troubled relationship, and it did lead to that to a change in the law in 1978, declaring all the records of a president while he is president to be public records. So no president of the United States leaves office saying that what they did in the Oval Office was their property. All of the tweets that uh, uh, Donald Trump issued, 55,000 tweets, I believe it is, during his presidency, are considered public records. Uh, so there's huge volumes of material, and certainly in electronic cases, electronic information, that's all public material. Now, anything he, he creates as a result of talking to his family or related to politics and so forth, that is private and that is his, that he does turn over to the government. So anyway, the Nixon Library precipitates a lot of change because the Nixon presidency is so unique as a result of his resignation. Air Force One, good question. The president, uh, I, I think it was uh, under um, President Clinton, uh, they were going to retire Air Force One, the old Air Force One, which had been in operation for, I think, about 30 years. So the opportunity, what are they going to do with the, the, the uh, airplane? The folks out in California, always wanting to do something really, really big, uh, made a play and got uh, the uh, 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 the White House to, uh, or, or I'm not absolutely sure who it was, perhaps it was the Air Force, sell the plane or, or donate the plane to the Reagan Library with the idea that it would be put on display. They built a separate pavilion. It's like having a house and deciding you need a six-car garage. All of a sudden, the pavilion for Air Force One is really uh, somewhat overshadows the presidential library itself. But it's a remarkable place to visit. You can certainly have a picture of yourself standing at the top of the, uh, the stairway uh, of Air Force One and, and, and have that as a memento. Uh, it's a lot smaller inside than you'd ever imagine. So, uh, but it is a part of, uh, of the uh, Reagan Presidential Library now. It's a really extraordinary part of it. Uh, you go out to the FDR Library, you can, of course, see his limousine. Uh, but we've gone from limousines now to Air Force One. All right, um, Tim, so I'm interested now in, since you've been talking a lot about papers, um, how is access to presidential papers managed? Uh, is anyone allowed to gain access? Um, is everything digitized now so that you have hard copies in uh, archives that, that nobody gets to touch? but you have more access on websites. Um, do I need to be a professor or do I need to have a research proposal at work in order to get access to uh, presidential materials? Um, I'm just curious from a historian, how do you get your hands on this stuff? Well, you're absolutely right about uh, questioning this because, of course, um, people presume uh, after having worked with other repositories that it's going to be restrictive. And I would say absolutely not, partly because it's a public institution and the, the, uh, uh, the library staff or the archive staff at these institutions are, are very uh, evangelical in the sense that they want to reach out to the largest possible audience. Most of them work with fifth grade students on up for things like national History Day and that sort of thing. It is heavily uh, 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 visited by 
scholars and academics, and there is a substantial amount of material available online. And I would encourage anybody who hears this who is interested in some aspect of particularly more recent presidents to look at the the website online. They're very, uh, again, paid for with private money, actually, uh, uh, very sophisticated, interactive websites. Uh, so a lot of the material, particularly, say, the Kennedy uh, uh, materials and, and on are available electronically. And so much of the paper that is created, uh, or excuse me, much of the information that's available now is in electronic form. That having been said, privacy and national security puts a lot of restriction on the papers of more recent presidents. Everything related to Herbert Hoover, FDR, almost everything related to Truman and Eisenhower are now available. There are some restrictions, particularly even for Truman and Eisenhower. Uh, and as you get closer and closer, there's a lot more restrictions. So if people are looking for deep, dark secrets, uh, uh, they're going to find that whatever materials, say, the FBI might have had or whatever, National Security Council and so forth, those are all going to be restricted. So the, the good news is it's open to any legitimate research uh, interest, regardless of education or background, the bad news is, as you get closer to the president, to the time of uh, most people remember, let's say Bill Clinton forward, uh, there's going to be only the public records that will be largely available. That could be, you know, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of documents, though. There are terabytes, 150 terabytes, I think it is, of information for the Obama presidency. I mean, just the sheer volume electronically is, is almost overwhelming. Dave. And Dr. Walsh, uh, you have a unique perspective as the former director of the Hoover Library. I'm curious uh, what your favorite part of uh, the Hoover collection is and if uh, you know of something that maybe is unique there that the public may have overlooked uh, on their last visit there. (laughs) Well, I, I will say this because many, many Iowans have visited the library on a number of occasions. There, There are no real secret gems, but but there are some touching items I want to point out. Some of it relates to just the, the, the poignancy of Hoover's service to the world. For most people, they remember Hoover, of course, as a president for four years during a time of the Great Depression. The, gov- the federal government really let people down or failed to respond at a time when the government wasn't expected to respond, but nevertheless, they hold Hoover accountable. What I like to remind people is before he became president, and indeed after he was president, he was a humanitarian who served literally tens of millions of people and and helped to save their lives. And we have this extraordinary collection of embroidered flour sacks from Belgium. They were basically the sacks that the food had come in, the grain had come in, milled grain, to, to allow them to make bread. And the ladies of Belgium embroidered special messages of thanks. And we rotate there are hundreds of them at the Hoover Library. They are really unique. And it's extraordinary folk art, but it's a real evidence of compassion for a man that most Americans think of as hard-hearted and uncaring. So I want to always point out, be sure you see the flower sex and realize that what you think about a person may not be the whole person. The other thing is a wooden box that people often will ignore or overlook as they go through the galleries. And it's the very first television, which really, in many ways, was the very first Zoom call, I'm going to say, because in 1927, Herbert Hoover, as a Secretary of Commerce, conducted an interactive picture telephone call 
which was the very first example of television, which eventually leads uh, in 1939 to Philo Farnsworth and television and social communication that we have today. So you can see little nuggets, little gems, little beginnings uh, the more time you spend at the Hoover Library. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 402nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Timothy Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Hoover Presidential Library, who talked to us about the origin and evolution of the presidential library system. The history buff for today's show was Dave Baker. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not those, necessarily, of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We are going to form a committee to see if we're going to keep this history buff today's show. Uh, we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>